Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, it's the best time of the year because it's the first Grand Slam of the calendar year. The Australian Open is now upon us officially. And as we're speaking right now, first round action is already underway. I I don't know about you, but nothing gets me more fired up than Grand Slam tennis early, early on in a year. Yeah, we got a lot to dive into in this first episode, uh, sort of breaking down how things look in both the men's and the women's draws. And then on top of that, Ben, it's great this week that we've got such a a fantastic guest joining us, Olympic gold medalist and a former champion here in Toronto as well. Belinda Bencic joins us on Matchpoint Canada. So this episode, I'm pretty fired up about. I can't uh, can't lie. Yeah, it's great. And we've had her. uh, This is the second time we've now had her. And uh, you had a nice conversation with her uh, ahead of the Australian Open, just talking about the the season that lies ahead for her. But uh, before we get to that, we'll start on the men's side. And I think what we basically should get out of the way before we properly get to the tennis. And I can't illustrate this enough. I want the focus to be on the tennis um, because finally this international saga with Novak Djokovic has come to an end. In a way, we almost had to wait to do this recording. We didn't know if he was going to be in the draw or not, um, but we got her our, our answer really in the 11th hour, basically getting uh, deported from Australia uh, by Minister for Immigration, Alex Hawk. Uh, so Novak Djokovic will not compete at the Australian Open for 2022. Uh, there's a question mark if he gets to play in the next three years, even based on this deportation. So uh, I'll, I'll start here, I guess. Mike, How? what do you think... Um, this looks like for tennis. How is it an ugly look? What are your thoughts? Well, it certainly doesn't help because I feel like it puts tennis in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. Nothing but sort of negative headlines to start the year and absolutely nothing to do with any of the product that we're going to be seeing on the court. Um, I was very busy with media requests talking about this on Canadian television. And it it seems to me like that's the only time I get called from non-sports outlets is when something sort of bad is happening in tennis. And, um, you know, it kind of pains me that that that's what brings attention to the sport, especially at the start of the season. And especially for a player who, you know, under normal circumstances, we would all be excited to see if Novak could get Grand Slam number 21, surpassing Nadal and Federer here, uh, writing some history. And instead, it's uh, it's bad news for the sport and it's bad news for him and his image as well with what's gone on. Yeah, and it's uh, just astonishing how it all unfolded over such a long period of time. We didn't have answers for such a long time as uh, of course he won that initial appeal which revoked the visa cancellation and then that was taken back and uh, that final ruling um there was really nothing Novak Djokovic could do uh, there's been questions of what this does for his legacy but I I really think he was in some instances through all of this saga treated a bit unfairly I don't know about you maybe maybe I'm being maybe I'm I'm wrong in that but I I think he was uh, kind of taken through the coals, especially the last week by by some people in the media and, and just his overall treatment when he really did think he could enter the country legally by a medical exemption. Yeah, there was a lot going on here. And I think uh, you can't point the finger at one individual mm-hmm. uh, in terms of who created this mess. I, a lot of people say, well, Novak could have just avoided it all if he had been vaccinated, but I don't see that really having to do with the um, the circus that that started out with him being allowed in with his medical exemption, thanks to Craig Tiley, 
without them really first checking with the government to make sure that would jive with the federal government and clearly the image they want to portray to the public there. Uh, they said that he's not allowed to stay in Australia because of uh, the, the, the greater good, the public uh, image that it would create really around the uh, vax versus anti-vax movements. And it became very political, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And we should note that it's a federal election coming up in just a couple of months in Australia. So no doubt there was some political grandstanding happening here. This whole situation could have been avoided, not just if Novak had been vaccinated, but this whole situation could have been avoided if the government and the tournament had talked. And we could have avoided him getting on a plane in the first place. We mm-hmm. could have just told them straight up, look, Novak, it's not going to happen. The government's not going to grant a visa to anybody who's coming in who's unvaccinated. Um, but, but that didn't happen. And then when he arrived, things unraveled very quickly. And of course, once it came to light that he wasn't vaccinated, and I think also just the public perception of him walking around after testing COVID positive, especially with those journalists from L'Equipe, yeah. that's when a lot of people's public sentiment really turned. Like I was willing to give Novak the benefit of the doubt, even mm-hmm. though he's not vaccinated and that was his choice. But once I saw that he was willing to put other people at risk and not be upfront about the fact he was positive, then he kind of lost my sympathy. And that's not to say this whole situation's his fault, but I do look at him differently now than I did before that came to light. Yeah, that's that for, for me, um, I feel the same way that that was, um, you know, irresponsible and egregious mistake at, at the very least. If, if Novak Djokovic, as he said, did indeed have that positive test for December 16th, know about it December 17th after doing public events, which maybe he should not have done, though he claimed to have taken rapid tests before he did those, but uh, not disclosing. Um, a positive test to a journalist on December 18th and then going in for this photo shoot and interview. I was told that uh, he was distanced and masked for that, but I, I just don't know why he wouldn't have the wherewithal to, to understand, you know, you have to reveal this and then let the journalist decide, we don't want to do this, let's reschedule. I, I That seems like such a simple solution. And I again, I, I've said this before, Novak Djokovic seems to often make big screw-ups in terms of optics. Um, He doesn't seem to have a good perception of how something may look to others, even if it seems normal to him. And that's something I think, yeah, go ahead. It's it's so unfortunate because he has done so much great stuff. He's very giving in terms Mm -hmm. of charitable donations and causes. Um, He's well-liked amongst his peers. Um, Like it or not, the PTPA, he's trying to do something. Um, for the entire tour, the the body of men's uh, tennis to make things better for the players, especially those who are ranked outside the top 100. But these things get forgotten when the headlines take over with something negative like this. Or I think back to the summer of 2020, his Adria tour, where the players were partying afterwards around each other. And that just clearly wasn't sending, you know, the right message or the message that I would want kids to see um, during, during the pandemic that's happening. So I think a lot of learning for him to do. Um, I, I think he'll bounce back just fine. I think he's going to come back with a vengeance and be super motivated, you mm-hmm. know, if he can play the French Open, for example, to give his best effort there to potentially get number 21. As for him, you know, potentially not being able to play the Aussie Open for the next three years, I would be shocked if it was actually enforced at that level. I do believe, and it was pretty much stated that they do have the ability to work around that, the government, and, yes. and allow him to come back in. But what kind of world are we living in 12 months from now? Is the pandemic still a thing with another variant where we still have to be you know, vaccinated and take all these precautions? So who knows what that will look like? But for the time being, it's, uh, it's unfortunate really for everyone. No one comes out of this looking good, except for, yeah. I should say, except for the Australian court reporters uh, and social media 
tweets we were getting from some of those reporters who were kind of filling us in on all the intricacies of what was going on there, because never in a million years did I think I'd spend, you know, a Saturday night listening into a YouTube um, trial uh, or hearing, I should say, with uh, 66,000 other people. <laughs> yeah, uh, strange, strange, <laughs> incredible times. Uh, yeah, credit to a journalist, uh, I believe, in Australia, Karen Sweeney. She was doing fantastic with all of those updates. Um, so we'll get to the tennis and how this ultimately changes so much of the draw. So Novak Djokovic is not there. And filling in in his place at the very top of this draw is lucky loser Salvatore Caruso. So uh, Miomir Kekmanovic must be feeling a lot better about his first round chances than he was, you know, uh, less than a week ago as he'll face the lucky loser. We'll look at this uh, draw maybe quarter by quarter and we can start here uh, in the top. No Novak Djokovic. That really opens up the first quarter of play where if you look at the names for me, I feel like the best remaining player in this section might be a Wimbledon finalist, Matteo Berrettini. Yeah, this is his quarter to basically own now, thanks to Djokovic's departure. Djokovic, also a player who had given Berrettini a lot of trouble in Grand Slams in recent years, as the two have met several times. Uh, But he's the big contender, the seventh seed in that top quarter. Now, keep in mind, as we're recording this, there are going to be matches over the next 24, 48 hours that may change a lot of what we say. But at this point in time, there's only been, you know, a few that have come to completion. The only other name I see in that top corner uh, quarter who could perhaps give him some trouble is Cam Norrie from Great Britain, who had a fantastic 2021 season. Um, But otherwise, I think Berrettini, as you mentioned, is the overwhelming favorite. Whereas I look at every other quarter and I see a good three, four, five names um, that could cause some trouble. Yeah, I will mention one other name there in that quarter, maybe two actually, and they're both from Spain, Carlos Alcaraz. I mean, given what he did produce at the U S open, I think we have to consider him a threat. That would be an interesting match. If he does line up to face Berrettini, I believe that's a possible third round matchup. And uh, Pablo Carreño Busta has played some very good tennis in the past on hard courts, making runs at the U S open. You never know. Could he kind of quietly get through in this quarter? It's possible, but uh, no, I'm with you. That certainly Berrettini is the favorite here. Um, If we jump down just to the second quarter, there's two names that are of course, standing out Uh, number three seed, Alexander Zverev, and then 20 time slam champion, Rafael Nadal, whose chances have of course, markedly increased at getting number 21 in Australia without Novak Djokovic, despite the fact that he hasn't won this tournament in 12 years. Yeah, well, he's the only one that now has the chance to get Slam 21 here in Australia since Federer and Djokovic aren't present. And uh, I went big and I predicted Nadal to win the tournament, um, partly because when we were doing our Tennis Canada picks, I, I knew most people were going to go with Medvedev, who we'll talk about <laughs> in a few moments. And yep. so I figured, let's be a little bit different. And I was kind of taking a leap of faith because it looked like Djokovic likely wasn't going to get to stay in the country um, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to go with Nadal because nothing would surprise me with this great champion. Now he's going to have to get through her catch potentially in round four, which would be a tough one because her catch is, uh, I think my dark horse pick for the whole tournament. Um, he's been playing great too. And we saw him last summer in Toronto looking real good against Medvedev, uh, in their three set match. And then you got Zverev who could line up against Shapovalov in round yep. four. Um, so I think likely a Zverev Nadal, um, quarterfinal match there, which would be uh, a wonderful uh, five set extravaganza, I would imagine. Yeah, that could be a really, really good showdown. There are other names lurking here that I think could cause some trouble. Um, 
the one that's actually standing out to me, he made the semifinals out of nowhere last year as a qualifier. We'll remember Aslan Karatsev. And for me, he proved that that was no fluke, uh, especially through the first half of last season. And he started off 2022 incredibly strong, uh, just won a title this past week, beat Andy Murray in the final in straight sets. And he's just striking the ball uh, so powerfully from the back of the court, taking the ball early. So I'm really interested if we get like a Karatsev Hurkacz showdown, kind of two different styles of play. Hurkacz doesn't take the ball quite so early, um, but is a very dynamic player. That one could be interesting. We have a couple big servers in this quarter with uh, Opelka and Kevin Anderson. Maybe they could do a little damage. And then, I mean, talking about Denis Shapovalov, could he potentially spur an upset against Alexander Zverev if that's a round of 16 encounter? I, I like Dennis's chances to at least win his first few matches, I think, with the way this draw looks. Yeah, and I think given the way that he and Felix Ogielius team started the season with that big win for Canada at the ATP Cup, the confidence that that must give them moving forward. Uh, although as we're recording now, uh, Shapovalov is up two sets to one against um, Laszlo Ogier. So who knows what happens next there. We'll be keeping an eye on it, but our recording will be done prior to the conclusion of that match. But uh, I feel as good about Shapo's chances as the, at this Aussie Open as I have it at any slam, really, given the way he started the year. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. Um, we'll head over to the third quarter, third of four. And um, this one, I think, I think this is probably the most open quarter of all of them. I would More say than the top quarter. I think that top quarter is pretty wide open unless we feel that Berrettini is just a lock to come through it. Yeah, I, I don't think he's a lock at all. The reason I think this for me is the most open quarter is because Stefano Tsitsipas had the elbow issue um, and the surgery at the front end of the season. So there are a lot of questions of his form. I look at you know, Kasparu is a very strong player. He hasn't really proven himself yet on a Grand Slam stage. He says that's a goal for him this year. Then other names, Roberto Bautista Gut. I'll talk about him in a moment. Taylor Fritz is in the mix. Andy Murray is in this quarter. I just see a lot of players who could, it wouldn't surprise me if a handful of these names, Yannick Sinner, went went on a run. Yeah, Sinner's in there as well on the one end of the spectrum being one of the young guns. And then on the other, you've got Andy Murray, who's shown a, a resurgence to start, start the year by making that final, which was just so fantastic to see. And let's not forget, he's made the Aussie Open final five times before, mm -hmm. uh, never being able to come through, unfortunately. But I'm not predicting a deep run from Andy Murray. But I still think given any day, if he's clicking, he could give anyone out there trouble. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you there. Alex Dimenauer, I'm curious to see if he can kind of rally the Australian crowd. He seems to play his best tennis down under. He's missed the tournament in the past, but I recall a run. I believe he made fourth round before losing to Nadal a few years back. He He's galvanized by that Aussie crowd, and he'll face Italian Lorenzo Musetti. I think he wins that match to start. He's in that section with Casper Ruud, so it wouldn't surprise me if he maybe makes third round, round of 16, and then... Yeah, I like Yannick Sinner's draw a lot, to be honest. I think his first couple matches look easy. And we've seen him in a quarterfinal already of a slam. And hey, speaking of an Aussie who could get people going in Melbourne, how about Nick Kyrgios, if we look ahead here to the fourth quarter, who yeah. could play Medvedev in the second round. Now, Kyrgios is always like just such a wild card because he hasn't played a whole lot. Is he going to show up mentally? Uh, but if he does, this guy's got all the talent in the world. And he holds a 2-0 and head-to-head -head against Medvedev, although both those wins were back in 2019. A lot has changed in that time frame with Medvedev emerging as such a strong, uh, dominant number two on the ATP right now. But that could be a match with the crowd behind him. Who knows what could happen, but fireworks for sure.
Yeah, and uh, the, he had so many, he, all of his matches last year, I recall, at the Australian Open, and he kind of didn't really play much tennis at all. After that, we saw fireworks, like a five-set thriller with Ugo Umber that he won, a five-set battle with Dominic Team. So uh, nothing drives this guy more than that the Australian crowd, even though it will be 50% capacity. I, I think uh, they'll be loud as usual, as they often are. So that could be a really tough second-round match for Daniil Medvedev. I, I think he manages it. Felix Ojealiasim, we have to talk about. I, I think there's a great opportunity for him. If I'm looking at the players who played some of the best tennis to open the season beyond, you know, guys who, who won titles, Felix is, is right up there. And for me, he's already taken a step in that first week, the way he played at ATP Cup. I think that's going to be a real game changer for him. I mean, it, he's back into the top 10 at number nine. Yeah. Um, the confidence he got from that ATP Cup just watching him looking at that trophy afterwards, you know, he's hungry to get his hands on, a, on another ATP trophy an individual trophy. And as you mentioned, I do like the draw. Uh, should he meet up with Medvedev that didn't go so well at the ATP cup, mm -hmm. but what does he learn from that experience? And it would be a best of five as well. So uh, just like I felt good about Chapel coming in this tournament, I feel, you know, even better about Felix, I would say between the two of them. And Felix was your pick, I believe, uh, amongst us Tennis Canada folks to have the best run men or um, men or woman uh, at the Aussie Open this year. Yeah, yeah, he was. And uh, I had to halt that run at the quarterfinals because I see a looming showdown with Daniil Medvedev and I'm just looking at their past matches, ATP Cup, as you mentioned, which was one sided and the US Open, which was pretty one-sided as well in that in that semifinal we'll remember that I, i'm not sure felix is ready to take out someone of his caliber but uh i just i love the way he's playing right now i think his return of serve has improved he's serving great and and hitting the ball so well from the back of the court if we get a round of 16 match actually with the number five andre rublev i think that has potential for a very long compelling match those two could play i i recall they played a final a couple of years ago i think it was like seven six in the third so i think they would have a great match if that's a showdown i just hope they put these canadian matches at like 11 a.m uh, local <laughs> time in melbourne so we yeah, can watch them at 7 p.m eastern you know yeah. i can watch them put my kids to bed come back catch a little bit more not be totally exhausted every day walking around like a zombie um so it was nice the chapel one got put on early i do appreciate that mm -hmm. we'll see if we have the same luck with the other canadians uh, there are a few canadian names who are not present obviously in Melbourne. So we just want to touch on Vashik Pospisil, who's been playing uh, challengers recently. Milos Raonic, who tells me, I spoke with him recently, actually said he's still not ready, um, but he's he's working hard to get back on tour. And um, and Braden Schnur fell in the first round of qualifying to uh, round out uh, the Canadian men that we would normally sort of take a look at here. Yes, yes. Um, before we wrap on the men's side, I, I guess we'll go to that point where we give our picks. You mentioned Nadal. So tell us firstly, maybe do you want to give me your, your final? And then also, do you have a dark horse that you're taking on the men's side? Yeah. So I guess the final, if I pick Nadal, I better stick with that. So Nadal to come out of the top half without Djokovic, that definitely uh, helps his chances. And in the bottom, I mean, you'd be kind of crazy to go against Medvedev, right? Like I've already picked Nadal to win the trophy. So I got to at least pick Medvedev to get to the, the finals. So that's, uh, that's my two. And my dark horse, I think I might've said earlier is, is her catch um, that uh, he might uh, catch fire. And uh, again, I think he's one of those players that's quietly put himself up into the top 10 there. And, um, and I expect a big year from him, whether it happens here or later on. Uh, he's one player that I think is definitely making big strides year to year. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh he's one of my favorites as well. Um, 
I'll bring that to my pick, uh, as we alluded to earlier. I just really like the way this draw looks for Danil Medvedev, even though he actually did lose to Ugo Umber at the front end of the season, and it's possible they get a rematch. I think if he kind of navigates that second and third round, Kyrgios is a bit of a landmine. I think he'll kind of catch fire after that. As well as Felix is playing right now, I don't see a way through Medvedev for Oje Aliasim if that's a quarterfinal, and then that third quarter just doesn't look quite as strong to me. So I have Medvedev reaching the final. I will say it's not that exciting because you have the same final, but I'll say we'll get a rematch of the 2019 U.S. Open final. If we remember, it was a five-set thriller that Nadal overcame Medvedev. I'm going to take Medvedev beating Nadal in the finals as Nadal somehow gets past Verev in like a long five-set match, finds his way in the final and, uh, and goes out to Danil. And I'll tell you my dark horse pick. I wasn't trying to just pick him because I'm always high on Roberto Bautista Goop, but he did legitimately have such a good ATP cup. Then I saw his draw. It, it's in the quarter where I feel is the most open that I honestly could see him potentially making a quarterfinal, especially with question marks around Stefano Tsitsipas's health. So I think if he wins those first few matches, you might have trouble with Taylor Fritz in the third round. But I think if he gets past that, he could make a bit of a run and he's done it before. Good choices. And I think overall with our picks, we've minimized, hopefully, the ability to embarrass ourselves too much. I'm feeling pretty good about what we both said. And the fact that we've got the same two guys in the final, not that it's a huge leap of faith to say so, hopefully bodes well for our chances here. Now we'll move over to the women's draw and see what we can do there in terms of our selections. But before we get into previewing the women's draw, let's uh, cue up the interview with Belinda Bencic, who I spoke with just days before the start of the Aussie Open. As you mentioned, we've had her on the podcast before. Um, very pleasant to talk to. And uh, she started the year off with uh, some difficulties, as she shared on social media, a really tough case of COVID that she's now over uh, and hopefully uh, doesn't hamper her too much. She got through her round one uh, match at the Aussie Open already. Um, so here is my chat with Belinda Bencic. Well, happy to be joined for a special Matchpoint Canada interview by Switzerland's Belinda Bencic. So first of all, thank you for taking the time and Happy New Year. Good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me and Happy New Year. Uh, Social media, you said uh, not too long ago that you had a pretty severe case of COVID. Um, Wanted to ask you to start. How much did that affect your preparations before the start of the season? And can you share with us what that was like for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't easy, definitely, you know, I'm not comparing, of course, to like, um, you know, getting hospitalized and all the people that had it much worse. And um, um, so I think it was it was tougher than I expected, for sure. I mean, for an athlete, um, I think get, getting back to training was the hardest part because, you know, the the pulse and the breath and the heart just it's um, just going up more and um, you have to take it really slow with practice I did all the tests necessary and everything so um, I think it's getting better day by day but for sure it's I mean it's affecting everyone you know it's it's not like um, it's just easy and um, I think definitely it's better to have it before the season than during the season that's for sure. Yeah, it's great to see you back, and uh, I can't believe you're you're only 24, but it, it feels like you've been around a lot longer now. Yeah, um, everyone tells life, me that. <laughs> <laughs> does life as a professional tennis player change as you become more experienced on the job? Does it get easier as you enter, you know, your seventh or eighth season as a as a pro here? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like it makes you more mature, uh, especially you know when you start at a younger age. I feel like, yeah, you're like 
basically alone in your job, like in your career, you know, you have all the pressure and, and you know, just the, the tennis life, but also, you know, traveling and kind of, you know, being around, you know, people, um, just different cultures, everything, it makes you more kind of like an adult, it makes you more mature. So um, I'm definitely appreciating it, but for sure it feels like I've been on the tour very long, but still, you know, I have uh, some big goals and, and dreams to, to do. Um, but I'm enjoying more definitely now that as I get older. <laughs> well, Swiss tennis players seem to have pretty lengthy careers, so I think you've got many years in front of you just looking <laughs> well, at we'll see. Roger and, and Martina Hingis, for example. Are, are you the type of player who likes to set goals at the start of a season? And if so, do you have any specific ones that you've sort of set out with your team or individually for 2022? No, I definitely don't feel like, um, you know, setting goals is always the best thing to do. I think setting goals in terms of improving yourself and setting very short term goals is important for me because then, you know, you can always reach them. It makes you more motivated. It, it feels good, you know, by reaching goals. But I don't put big ranking goals or tournament goals, you know, in front of me because it's just not the way how I think and how I, how, wa how I want to approach tournaments. So I'm taking more easy and honestly, you know, the new year, it's not going to change much. You know, it's still a, a nonstop season. You're still going and um, practicing and playing in an, every tournament in and out. So, um, yeah, for me, it's just like keep going and, and improving myself and like on terms of a practice court. I haven't spoken with you since before you had your big Olympic Games in Tokyo, so a belated congratulations on both your singles and doubles performance there. Did those results, winning the gold medal and the silver medal, does that change your perspective at all? Does it allow you to play any freer or breathe a little easier when you step out on court for big matches, having that fantastic result under your belt? For sure, yes, because uh, the Olympics was a big dream of mine and uh, like huge thing to achieve for me personally. Um, it's really the biggest thing I'll ever kind of win, so I will take any loss for, for the gold medal. And um, I definitely changed, it changed me a little bit and really I'm being freer. Um, I really feel like when I play on the court I can really enjoy more because obviously it was a big goal of winning a big title finally and now you have that pressure of your shoulder so, shoulder so you can just enjoy and keep playing but still you know I'm, I'm aiming for some goals and, and uh, some dreams so I still want to you know win some big things but um, it's not like I have to. I've got to ask you where do you keep the Olympic gold medal? <laughs> what special place do you, do you put that one? This is like people's favorite question, but uh, I always say it's in the safe, so um, I don't want any robbers at my house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll just leave it at that then. Um, I, I did want to ask you about another Swiss Olympic uh, medalist, that being Roger Federer from a few years ago. Uh, um, have you got any information about how his recovery is going as a fellow Swiss player and, and someone you know well? And what do you think a healthy Roger Federer could do at the age of 40 uh, when he does return to the ATP? <laughs> Well, I think uh, people wrote him off so many times already, so um, he always keeps coming back and, you know, he proves so many times that he's the best, one of the best, the top three players in the world. So um, definitely I hope that he will get back and he will get back healthy and uh, kind of play again and, and play tournaments. I think the tennis world need to, needs to see him um, play. That's the nicest thing and also for me and I definitely think um, that he can be the best at any time.
Absolutely. We'd love to see you guys play mixed doubles one more time. If if that was possible too, I kind of missed the Hotman Cup where you guys used to yeah, have I so much success. Yeah, I miss it too. <laughs> you won over so many Canadian fans back in 2015 when you won here in Toronto. Um, I can't believe it's going to be seven years this summer since that big tournament for you where everyone kind of got to know you. Um, does it feel like that long ago for you? And uh, do you still have fond memories from that special week? I mean, yeah, it's weird. Sometimes it feels like really it has been yesterday, and especially when I go back to Toronto, um, but sometimes it feels long. So, I mean, a lot has happened since then. You know, I was still like a kid. I was like barely 18 or I was 18, but, you know, still very like new to everything. And I, I just played so freely there. I had nothing to lose and like kind of beat all these top players. So, I mean, a lot has changed, but still, you know, I remember it forever and, and kind of have the best memories there you know it's been really my first biggest title and also like beating Serena Williams is something that I will kind of always have in my mind it's it's very sp special for me to even ha like have got to play her um, so yeah it's it's a wonderful memory and I definitely like re I hope I can you know kind of uh, redo it again in Canada and I'm happy to play in Canada again so so that's a guarantee we'll see you this summer in August in Toronto yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely. If I'm going to be healthy and, and everything else is going to be fine. I mean, last year it was it was bad because of the Olympics. I actually was supposed to play in uh, Montreal, but uh, with the Olympics, I just uh, had couldn't. I had to rest the week. Um, but for sure, if, an, if the, anything doesn't happen, I will be there. Well, you had a good excuse for last year. We're looking forward to seeing you back this summer. Thanks so much, Belinda, for taking the time and all the best this season. Thank you very much. There you have it, Mike's interview with Swiss player and 24-year-old Belinda, Belinda Bencic. Feels like she's been on the tour for, you know, a fairly long time that I have to, like, pinch myself reminding me, reminding myself she's not even 25 years old yet. And uh, her ranking right now, which is number 23, I feel like she's playing much better tennis than that. And even the way she started the season, you mentioned, you know, getting over COVID, um, her, her one loss uh, ahead of the Australian Open was in three sets to Paula Bedosa, who's one of the hottest players on the tour. So Belinda Bencic, always capable of a deep run and, and winning a title at any given moment. And I think we talked before we started this recording that she has a brutal, brutal draw in Melbourne at the Australian Open. But I still see her as a threat and a tough out anytime she takes the court. Yeah, it's a bad draw for sure, uh, because I feel like if you place her in another quarter or the bottom half somewhere, she could have been a contender to make it to the semis for sure. But you see she's in that top quarter, and her second round match now is going to be against Amanda Anisimova, uh, the young American who just won a title uh, a week ago. Mm -hmm. And if she gets through that, well, Osaka's waiting potentially Barty's up in that quarter as well. So you, you couldn't have asked for a worse draw. I'm just happy we're releasing this interview and that she's won her first round match at least. So we can say she's still in the tournament and uh, and someone who otherwise... And, and look, who's to say what, what she could do? She's definitely capable of beating those players that we've uh, that just mentioned. Yep. But it is a very difficult draw. And again, is she at 100% in terms of her sort of physical stamina after coming through COVID? Uh, we just don't know that. But uh, nice to connect with her again. Boy, she was so young when she won in Toronto, um, which is going to be seven years ago come August, which is just, that blows my mind because it doesn't seem like that long ago to me. Yeah, I, I mean, 
2014-2015, there's kind of unbelievable for her, right? Quarterfinals, I think, when she was just 17 years old at the U.S. Open in 2014. Then she gets that first WTA Tour title in 2015. Then was suddenly in the top 10, and we had injuries, which, have, of course, struck for so many players, and she left the top 50. But she's obviously back in strong form. Um, and I, I have good memories of her battle with Bianca Andrescu in 2019 at the U.S. Open. That was such a good match, actually. Three-setter. And uh, those two often have those comparisons. We've heard Bianca being accidentally called Belinda in press conferences before because they look so similar. They kind of look like sisters. Um, yeah, and, and Belinda told us last year when we spoke to her that uh, they refer to each other as like oh hey twin how you doing when they see each other <laughs> at the tournaments because people often confuse the two which which I thought was uh, was pretty funny when she revealed that she had a great 2021 at the mm-hmm. Olympics getting the gold medal in singles and the silver medal in doubles that can never be neither of those can ever be taken away from her and she spoke about how that was like the dream of all dreams to, to do that such a, a huge accomplishment. I, I felt when she was talking about it, that she values that even more so than a grand slam. Yeah. Uh, a gold medal uh, at the Olympics. That's uh, an achievement. I think every athlete dreams of, right. So for her to achieve that and uh, she'll get, another opportunity at least probably a couple more opportunities playing olympic tennis so uh great for her and as you mentioned she's in the first quarter of the women's draw which we'll uh talk about now and uh world number one ash barty rightfully so at the top of the draw and playing already amazing tennis to start the season she you know notched a title to begin her 2022 campaign i i feel like this is the first time maybe in a while on the women's side where we have a slam and and I feel comfortable just saying Ash Barty is the favorite to win it, even though it it's so far from a guarantee, so difficult. If, if I'm being sensible, I'm going to probably take the field. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Like I never would have picked her ahead of that French open win or Wimbledon. She wouldn't have been my favorite going into either of those, but she is here in Melbourne and that's who I've put down as, as my pick to win it. Um, despite the draw that she's got. I mean, that draw can work one or or two ways, right? It can either be so tough that it leaves you exhausted for the quarters, semis, and finals if you make Mm -hmm. it that far, far, or um, it gives you that confidence that, hey, I've already beaten some terrific players here, so who's going to, you know, why can't I keep that going at this point? I was in on her pre-tournament press. Um, I was hoping to ask her a question, actually, but uh, they they stuck with the Aussie media, which is not a surprise. But I did want to ask her about her practice session last week with Leila Annie Fernandez, which was really cool to see our young Canadian talent getting to practice with the uh, not just the world number one, but the the home favorite in Australia. And uh, made me think to all those times Leila mentioned, oh, it was tough to get practice partners earlier in her career. And now look who she's hitting with, right? So that was really cool. But uh, the vibe I got from Barty's pre-tournament press was someone who seems very comfortable and is ready for the added pressure of playing in front of her own uh, fans here for this one. Yeah, and, and that's essentially what uh, our guest from last week, Renee Stubbs, um, said to me that uh, she thinks Barty overcame a lot mentally uh, in terms of challenges on the court, winning Wimbledon last year that uh, she feels maybe right now she can sort of take on the world. And uh, I, I'm sure the Aussie crowd would absolutely love if she took home uh, a title over over this fortnight in Melbourne. That would be incredible. Um, just a couple other names on this first quarter. We know Belinda Bencic is there, of course, and that's a potential third round with Naomi Osaka. The big potential showdown is if we get Osaka, Barty, round of 16. There are other strong names here, though. Maria Sakkari, of course, has played very well at Grand Slams, especially in 2021. She's there, uh, seated, I believe, number five. And we have Jessica Pagula. She made the quarterfinals here last year. Owns Javert, of 
course in the mix. So a lot of good players in the quarter, top quarter that uh, I think there are a number of players who could conceivably pull off a quarterfinal. I'm still looking at either Barty or Osaka, though. Yeah, I mean, just after you listed all those other names right now, I'm like, oh, crap, that is a tough quarter, right? Because there's <laughs> yeah. names I didn't even realize were in there, like Jabir, for example. Um, if we move ahead to the second quarter, um, Paula Badosa, I mean, has got to be the the favorite to me right now, given how she's been been playing lately. And by mm-hmm. lately, I mean really for the last year. Just terrific stuff. And I've also got Coco Goff as someone uh, in that section that, to me, I just can't believe she's only 17 years old, the way that she's been moving her way up the WTA rankings and the confidence and poise that she has on court. Um, this could be a huge tournament for Coco Goff coming out at a slam and having a, a, a super result. It would not surprise me one bit. No, uh, I'm, I'm ready for her to take the tennis world by storm over the next couple of years, to be honest. I, I think a Grand Slam is is coming her way sooner rather than later. Uh, the, the tennis she played in 2021. And look, she had a very good start to this season as well. Um, she was really the only one who fully, fully pushed Ash Barty in that opening week title. She was up a set and a break, nearly taking down the world number one. So she's playing awesome tennis. Paula Bedosa, as you mentioned, just had an amazing victory at the Sydney Tennis Classic. Um, absolute thriller matches. You beat Bencic in three sets to reach the semis, rolled past uh, Kasakina, and then beating Barbara Krychikova in a very tightly contested final 7-6 in the third. Krychikova beat Contivate in the semis uh, the round before. I think it was something like 15-13 in the third set tiebreak. So we had a couple of thrillers at that tournament. Uh, both of those players, of course, playing well. And one name I don't want to overlook because she's she's won the Australian Open two times is veteran Victoria Azarenka also in this quarter. So maybe she catches fire and does some damage. One of the best ball strikers on tour when she's on her game. I didn't even notice her name when I was looking through that quarter, but I got to be honest, I hate the way they've got the draw sort of laid out on the website at the Aussie Open. I don't know what it is. It's just yeah, hard it's to a little sort of awkward follow. to look at. It, it printed funny for me too, so I'm going to blame that on missing Azarenka in there. Uh, one name I want to mention in this part of the draw is Madison Keys, who just won a tournament in Adelaide where she beat Svitolina in the first round and uh, Coco Goff uh, and then Allison Risk in the finals. So for me, that's someone who's flying under the radar, a former slam finalist, and yep. uh, she's up against 11th seed Sophia Cannon in the first round, but I feel that Keys is the heavy favorite in that, in that match, given how Kennan's been struggling in recent months. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, she's really slipped since winning a WTA Player of the Year in 2020 French Open Finals, the Aussie Open title, and we just have not seen the form and consistency, consistency and, of course, uh, some setbacks with, with injury there as well. Uh, let's go to the bottom half of the draw and that third quarter. I just mentioned her briefly. Annette Contivate, um is there as the sixth seed. We have Garbina Muguruza as the third seed, who, of course, finished the season so strong, winning the WTA Finals. And then a few other... Other dangerous names that are standing out, veteran Simona Halep, Elena Rabakina, I think is one of the best uh, best upcoming players we have today. And very interesting first round match we'll have to talk about as well. Emma Raducanu against Sloane Stephens, two U.S. Open champions showing down in the first round. Yes, but Ben, tell me first about Contivate and the great things that you foresee her <laughs> accomplishing over the next two weeks. I uh, look through some numbers here and Contivate has, first of all, she has the most wins post-US Open of any player on the women's tour. So that is already 
a standout quality. Three titles. You made the WTA finals final before going down to Garbina Muguruza. And I believe it's 24 and six is the record since the U.S. Open. So she's just been, been on absolute fire, the, the quality of tennis she's playing. And two of those losses actually came to Muguruza, both at the WTA finals. She nearly beat Krychikova this past week. As I said, I think it was 15-13 in the third set tiebreak. And here's my take on that. I actually think it is a good thing she lost in this tournament. She didn't kill herself winning a title and then goes into the Aussie Open a little bit fresher because she went out in the semis. That's just my take. She's playing such confident tennis. And uh, <laughs> that's my reason she's going to be my pick to win this thing. Yeah, I saw that. That My eyes kind of popped out of my head. Not, you know, <laughs> just because it's a little bit off the, you know, but after you mention all those stats and how well she's done, um, in, in recent months, she's definitely, uh, up there. Uh, I like Simona Halep in this section of the draw because she's done so well here in the past semifinals in 2020 finals in 2018, where she lost a close one to Caroline Wozniacki, of course, um, hasn't played as much throughout the pandemic as, uh, some players, but she just made the finals and won a tournament leading up to this yep. one. Um, so that's got to bode well for her. And uh, yeah, that's my pick. If I had to pick someone to come out of this quarter of the draw, um, I'm, I'd go with Simona Halep based on her uh, prior success. I, I would love to see like a classic sort of veteran versus veteran matchup of Grand Slam champions of Halep and Muguruza meet in the round of 16. I think that would be a very fun matchup of sort of offense versus counterpunching skills. If we get that showdown, that would be really, really interesting. Uh, let's go to the very last quarter of the draw, bottom half of the draw, which is where we'll find Leila Fernandez. Number two seed, Arena Sabalenka, right at the bottom. Iga Spiontek, the seventh seed, as I mentioned, Leila Fernandez. Leila Annie Fernandez, I should say, 23rd seed. She has a nice draw against a, a wild card to open. And I think this is a great opportunity for her to make a run, especially given that Arena Sabalenka has really struggled out of the gates in 2022. Yeah, this is a wide open section, and I don't think Leila Annie could have hoped for a better spot to land in the draw. Mm -hmm. Sabalenka is playing atrocious tennis right now. The number of double faults, I don't have enough fingers and toes to count in one match how many doubles she's throwing in there. So now's the perfect time to play her because confidence is definitely low. Um, we could get an all-Canadian third-round match between Leila Annie Fernandez and Rebecca Marino, and... I want to see it because that means that both players get there, but I don't want to see it because they're just two of the nicest athletes, not just Canadian athletes uh, ever to talk to. So it would be really tough to see them have to go head to head and they get along so great as well. Um, yep. I know Rebecca Marino really kind of took Layla under her wing in previous Fed Cup, Billie Jean Cups uh, in the past when Layla Andy was just kind of starting out. So It'd be difficult to watch, but we hope that both Canadians get as far as they possibly can. Uh, I think Leila Annie has a chance to go deep here. I could see her coming out against uh, Sviantec, and hopefully if that happens, it goes better than their recent matchup. Um, but to me, I'm picking Leila Annie to uh, have the best run of any Canadian male or female. Uh, I like the headspace she's in. We had a chat early in the year, and I think she's just ready to rock and continue to show people what a great player and, and future star she's going to be on the WTA. Yeah, honestly, I love that pick. And I was a little bit surprised with our panel of podcasters and experts that you were actually the only one to take Leila Annie Fernandez uh, as the Canadian to go the furthest. I believe everybody else uh, selected Felix Ojealiasim. And I was expecting more picks for Leila Annie. And yeah, I think this is an awesome quarter to land in, as you said, great opportunities. 
I wouldn't even be surprised, to be honest, if Arena Sabalenka is out in the second or third round. I'm looking at Marketa Vondrasova is lurking there. That could be, I believe, a, a third round match. Um, I don't trust that Sabalenka even makes the round of 16. The one matchup I'm really looking at for Layla, if it happens, though, does she run into uh, Angie Kerber in the third round, which would be a rematch of what we saw at the U.S. Open, which we remember was a great three-set thriller. Yeah, that could be fantastic. And I mean, you know, Kerber's not getting any younger. She's definitely one of the veterans now on the tour. Uh, And I think that um, Layla Annie is only getting stronger and stronger. Um, I mean, she's only 19 years old and uh, has already proven so much. So, um, hey, let's let's wait and see. And hopefully when we do our Aussie Open uh, midway episode in a week's time, we're still talking about Layla Annie Fernandez. Uh, But as we wrap up here, if we look at uh, all of these quarters put together, you go first this time. Who's going to make it to the finals uh, before Contivate? Uh, I guess who's going to be in the finals against Contivate? Your eventual sure. champion. Here. We're going to have two brand new Grand Slam finalists. I'm going. It's not off the cuff really at all because both both players are seated inside the top ten. My theory is Ash Barty and Naomi Osaka are just going to beat each other up a little too much, and one of them, whoever comes through that match, is going to run out of gas. And for me, the fittest player on the WTA side is Maria Sakkari. So if she works her way through that opening week unscathed, she has quite a nice draw. She might have to deal with Onshipper, but I think she has a great potential to make the semis. And then, of course, if she's in that semifinal, uh, surely she can she can make her first career final. So I have Annette Contivate against Maria Sakkari in the final and Contivate hoisting the title. Nice. And Zachary's really come on strong too recently. I mean, last year I, I was so sure she was going to beat Radicanu to make the finals at the U S open. And of course that didn't happen. I wonder if she got a little bit ahead of herself, but uh, I could definitely see her um, causing some trouble there. I've, I've obviously, I've got Barty winning the whole thing. So that's my top half pick. And uh, in the bottom, um, I, I think Simona Halep to me, um, but, Nothing would surprise me with Leila Annie Fernandez. Like if she made it to a second consecutive Grand Slam final, I would say, yeah, she totally has that within herself. So I guess I'm kind of, you know, taking the Homer side here, being a Canadian tennis journalist, but I just like what I see from her so much. And I like that quarter, which could give her just some great momentum moving forward. And we saw what she did with momentum at the U.S. Open. Once she started knocking off all those top 10 uh, players, Um, look what happened there. Yeah, like look at the quality of that run to make the finals and how much harder of a draw actually that was compared to what she has here. So maybe this is an even bigger opportunity to to make noise. It it wouldn't surprise me at all. Do you have a dark horse selection you want to name? Oh, crap. Who was my dark horse selection? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's someone we haven't even mentioned in our discussions here, but uh, Alina Svitolina, who falls in at the 15th seed, which is much lower than she's been accustomed to in recent years. But uh, I think this could work perfectly for her because she's not a top five seed. There isn't as much pressure on her. There isn't as much discussion. I haven't really heard her name brought up uh, yet at any point. So I'm going to go with, with her. I still think uh, perhaps the most talented active player without a slam, uh, perhaps up there with Karolina Pliskova. Um, So that would be my dark horse pick. Yeah, it's rare for her to be flying under the radar, which might be honestly a very good thing for her. So I I like that selection. Um, I'm going to give two because my first selection that you can find on Tennis Canada of my dark horse pick, I believe there's a potential that she could be facing Annette Contivate fairly early in this tournament. I think in the third round, Danielle Collins made the semifinals of the Australian Open back 
in uh, 2019. She had an exceptional run there. She's coming off a strong season in 2021, returned to the top 30. I think she just loves these hard courts uh, down, down under. And we often seem to see an American play well in Melbourne. I'm thinking Sophia Cannon won it in 2020. Uh, we had Jennifer Brady in the finals last year. So we're accustomed to an American making a run. It wouldn't shock me if Danielle Collins made one. So I'll name her and then I'll drop another name because I said I think she can beat Arena Sabalenka is Marketa Vondrasova, I think, could have potential at a run here. She was silver medalist at the Olympics, uh, losing in that finals to Bencic. I didn't know we were allowed to have like a runner-up pick in these categories, <laughs> by the way. So that's kind of sneaky of you, yeah, you know, kind it, of sliding that in there at that, the end of the episode. That's true. Like if my first one's not right, here's my second. Hey, maybe we'll give you a third as well, just in case. But uh, Got to cover okay. my tracks, right? All right? Hey, before we finish the episode here, a uh, fun thing that you and I were talking about before we started recording was in the 2000s, what has been our, our favorite Aussie Open final or, or result, men and women? Just could be one that we enjoyed the final matchup, could be one where we just enjoyed the run that a certain player went on. Which one for you, why don't we start with the, the, the men, which one for you over the course of the last 21 years now um, do you want to bring up? Yeah, look, I was looking back at the, the list of champions and kind of reminding myself of great matches and one that actually stood out to me and, and just something that's at least more fresh in the memory rather than going too far back. And we had so many great battles between, uh, you know, Justine Henning, Kleisters, Serena Williams, all in the early 2000s to mid 2000s. But uh, 2016, we've talked about her already. Angelique Kerber won her first career slam and she had to topple Serena Williams in the final in a three set thriller. And I thought she kind of reached the pinnacle of her tennis in that match. It was so so good her level what she did uh winning 6-4 in the third so I, I have a fond memory of her just like really seizing the moment and you look at Serena's losses and grand slams it really took like an incredible effort from the other player to, to beat her she was just that good and it was defending champion at the time she had won in 2015 so that's my choice uh for the women's final okay we'll start with the women I um I went with 2018 when Wozniacki beat Halep mm. in three sets and so much was on the line for both of those players seeking their first Grand Slam title. Uh, both had been top five, top 10 presences for a long time, uh, especially Wozniacki. You knew she was getting towards, uh, I mean, I didn't think she was going to retire when she did, but you knew she was getting up there anyways a little bit. And that final, I mean, Halep was up in that final set. And then it, it, it turned and you didn't see that coming. And that's part of the beauty of watching some of these women's matches. I just love it because it's so unpredictable. And, uh, you know, that was the only slam that she would uh, ever win, uh, although she'd been in the finals of some, some previous ones. Uh, but I just felt like such a nice person, always been great to me when we talked to her in press. And uh, I was just happy that she could get that one before she decided to hang up her racket. Yeah, I remember that priceless reaction when she uh, she won that final match point. I think uh, tears kind of swelling in her eyes. She couldn't believe it. It was it was a dream come true. Um, we'll go to our favorite men's final. Uh, for me, that like this is a very popular final. I think, um, and to me, it's one of the greatest matches played ever. 2012 between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, absolute thriller that lasted, you know, five hours fifty five minutes, seven five in the fifth set. Djokovic was playing, we remember his 2011 season was out of this world. He was playing tennis just on another level. Nobody could beat him. And he carried that over to the front end of 2012 at his favorite tournament. And I just felt, you know, the way he was playing, even in that final, 
there was only one man who was even going to be able to hang in with him. And that was Rafael Nadal, who won this dramatic fourth set. I remember him collapsing to his knees when he won the fourth and Djokovic just so mentally resilient coming back and winning that fifth set. And uh, I recall in the trophy ceremony, the two guys, they, they couldn't stand on their own feet. They were so exhausted that the, <laughs> that the uh, Australian Open organizers had to bring out chairs for them to sit on. So that for me is uh, the most memorable men's final. Awesome choice. Um, for me, I'm going to go with 2017 between Nadal and mm. Federer mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, you had two of the all-time greats right there who hadn't had very much Grand Slam success leading into that year. For Nadal, he hadn't been to a Grand Slam final since uh, French Open 2014. So that was nearly a three-year drought uh, between Grand Slam final appearances for him. And for Federer, he hadn't won a slam since 2012 at Wimbledon. He was going to be coming up to five years without a major. So just to see the two of them who had such an epic rivalry, I mean, before there was Novak, it was those two guys that were going head-to-head -head all the time. Um, it was really cool to see them back in a final. And it was so rare to see Nadal let go a fifth-set lead as well for Federer to come back and, and take that one, which which led to the two of them, if memory serves correctly, splitting the slams in 2017 yep. with Nadal getting the French Open, the US Open, Federer, the Aussie Open, and Wimbledon. So it was like, I guess, that one last great season that the two of them collectively shared. Um, and we all know the, the, the years after that, they've both been in the mix, but Novak has been so, so strong. Uh, but that one to me certainly stands out. And if I can give a runner up, since you did this earlier in the category, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, not just a particular final, but uh, how Andre Agassi sort of ended his career with so much success down under winning in 2000, 2001 and 2003. Um, you'll recall this was a tournament he didn't play between the start of his career and 1994. And you wonder if he had, if he'd have a couple more slams, almost undoubtedly you think he would. Um, so it was great to see that in the late stages of his career, he was still able to have success in Melbourne. And uh, although the finals don't stand out for me, any one of them in particular, mm -hmm. just him being there, it was really cool for me. This is before I was in the media uh, and I grew up really like an Andre. So it was, it was fun to watch. No, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I actually remember as a kid, I'm just looking at his scores quickly that uh, I remember that final against Yevgeny Kafelnikov, which uh, came in the year 2000. I was just 12 years old. I remember watching that one at my tennis club. So good memories there. Um, great tournament ahead. It's already underway. First round action. We thank Belinda Benjic, our guest. Um, this has been our Australian Open preview episode. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We'll talk to you next time.